I'm Cesar Rubio, five-time past master of Palm Springs Lodge number 693. Welcome to Masonic Muscle, where we focus on the strongest aspect of Freemasonry, a virtuous education of the mind, fortifying it with wise and serious truths, encouraging all brethren to increase their level of fitness one degree at a time, making exercise a cornerstone of your daily routine, because Freemasonry is work. You know it's work, brothers. Why are you pretending? And when you put the work in, you get closer and closer to the point within the circle. Masonic muscle. We give you more light, but no light weights. We're here to pump you up body, mind, and soul. Welcome back. Have you been getting some? Have you been getting out there? Get some push-ups in. Get some squats in. Get some crunches. Eat some yogurt. Eat some steak. Man, we had man cave night. At Lodge about two weeks ago, we had a ton of steak. I posted a bunch of pictures on Instagram. If you follow, we had a great time. Steak, veggies, no forks. No forks. Forks were forbidden. And, uh, you know, the joke came in, you know, fork me, fork you. How about that? Today's article is one written by Sean Ayer. For those of you Masons, uh, who, who are readers and uh, collectors of magazines and stuff like that. You know who Sean Ayer is. Prominent Masonic writer, prominent Masonic scholar, tours the world, is a member of probably every single Masonic uh, research and education circle, blah, blah, blah. But he wrote something interesting that I want to share with you because in the course of, if you're a Mason and you're not a Mason, in the course of your you know, uh, Masonic career, you're going to run into the esoteric topic and the spiritual topic. But this one, it has to do with, we're going to focus on esotericism. And this is an article written by Sean Ayer, like I mentioned before, and it is called Defining Esotericism from a Masonic Perspective. It is not he who has a parrot-like perfection in ritual as his sole qualification, but rather the one who so far as time and means and talent will allow, devote study to the deeper esoteric of the fraternity. Joseph E. Markholm, Chairman, Grand Lodge of Iowa, Masonic Library, 1901. And you can tell it's an older, someone uh, wrote it back in the day because no one uses esoteric anymore. I don't even know if that's in the dictionary, but... Whoever's out there listening, look it up and look to see if it's, if it's a word, esoteric. Esotericism. The mention of the word fills the minds of some with notions of beautiful and ancient truths and inspires them with curiosity about the inner meaning of the craft. For others, the term brings to mind unpleasant and tiresome lectures awash in insipid, unlikely and artificial interpretations of masonry. And for most, it is a word that is only semi-familiar, having something to do vaguely with mysticism and Masonic secrets. Although definition of the word esoteric has been somewhat unclear, duh, it seems that general interest in esotericism is growing. Brethren who are fortunate to belong to growing lodges have likely spoken with recent candidates who readily expressed interest in Masonry's esoteric and philosophical explanations. Suddenly, 
an element of Masonic life that had been re relegated to the margins is coming back to view, into view. Of course, this leaves Masonic leaders, at least those who do not wish to ignore this important rekindling of interest, with the challenge of obtaining some understanding of it, both in order to relate meaningfully to the motivations of these newer members, as well as to include these interests in lodge education and Masonic formation efforts as may be appropriate. The purpose here is to lend definition to the term, particularly as it can relate to Freemasonry. Now we're getting somewhere, gentlemen, brethren. Now we're getting somewhere because he, the purpose here is to lend definition to the term. This is something that we've been doing at Palm Springs Lodge, number 693, since uh, 2017 through the medium of what we practice as the trivium. And it's, it's based on a Socratic method of, of uh, conversation and learning. And we really begin to dig into the definition of terms. So we have to, we cannot enter into a conversation unless, or even negotiations, right? You, I mean, you would be dumb and stupid to enter negotiations if you haven't first defined your terms. And this is what he's talking about, definitions of terms. And the definition of terms, you're going to get into the etymology too. You're going to want to know where that word came from. So let's see what he says. What is Masonic esotericism? The word esoteric by itself simply means something which is understood only by a select or chosen inner group. Things like automotive repair or tax law might be called esoteric. Freemasons have used the word in a different and more traditional sense. It turns out that esotericism is nothing new. The word itself comes to us from the Greek, there it is, the etymology. Thank you, Brother Sean Ayer. The word itself comes to us from the Greek word esoterikos, inner thing, and is found in many ancient writings to refer to the inner teachings of a philosophical or spiritual group. Freemasons have historically used the term in three ways, denoting one, any of the elements of the Masonic ritual or lectures which are considered secret, i.e., matters reserved for the confines of a tiled lodge or material that is not monitorial, as American Masons might say. Yeah, we say that all the time at Lodge Monitory. Number two, any of the meanings which seem to be implicit, more by design than accident, within the Masonic symbolism, ritual, and lectures. And number three, any of the subjects generally included under the rubric of Western esotericism, including Kabbalah, alchemy, hermeticism, and other mystical pursuits which gained in popularity during the Renaissance period. And I mean, there's even, yeah, how, how do you use it, right? Even the word Kabbalah, is it Kabbalah? Is it Kabbalah? Is it Kabbalah? I mean, I've heard so many different ways uh, that people pronounce this, and then how do you spell it? Jeez. All right, let's continue. Considering each of these in a little more detail will allow us to shed valuable light on the topic and give us some ideas as to how to foster responsible explorations of esoteric matters in the future. Taxon 1. The social exclusionary function, the esoteric as private. That hieroglyphic bright, 
which none but craftsmen ever saw. Burn. In the first sense, the word esoteric is used in a somewhat constrained way to refer to those elements of Masonic work which are not for display outside a tiled lodge. In this definition, esoteric is a condition denoting private circumstances. It is the intended location of something rather than its content which makes it esoteric from this perspective. Of course, the implication is clearly that the thing reserved for private communication are so regarded because of their importance. For example, one of the earliest, earliest usages of the term esotericos in reference to spiritual tradition is in the essay on the Pythagorean life by Iamblichus, 250-325 CE, where it is said that the students in the Pythagorean school at first had to listen to their master from behind a veil. Those who passed the probationary period were called esotericoi and permitted to sit within the veil and see Pythagoras as he taught them. William Preston, the predominant author of the lectures used in American Freemasonry, refers to this portion of Iamblichus's text directly when he noted in 1801 that the ancient teacher divided them into the esoteric and exoteric classes. To the former, he instru instruct, entrusted the more sublime and secret doctrines. To the latter, the more simple and popular. This is one of the earliest Masonic uses of the term esoteric, and it formed how later Masonic writers would conceive of the notion. Of course, it is also an early example of the word exoteric, meaning those outside. This simple meaning of esoteric is relating to privileged information for members only become widely adopted throughout the fraternity. It is in this fundamental social exclusionary sense that the term is commonly used in Grand Lodge regulations today. Taxon 2. Textual Interpretive. The Esoteric as Implicit Teaching. He who runs would not care to give careful attention to the development of the idea and he who stops and thinks would better make the personal effort himself, and thus gain all the good in order to pass it on to someone else by throwing out the suggestion. T.M. Stewart A more involved concept of the esoteric is closely interwoven with the first taxon, and extends naturally from it. Here, the focus is on hidden meanings which might be available within the tradition. Thus, the physical arrangement of exoteric and esoteric classes becomes symbolic of the reality of the situation, which is not about physical proximity at all, i.e., are we inside or outside the veil, but more about insight and comprehension, i.e., do we get it or not? It may be described as the textual interpretive taxon. Because it was adopted into the degree lectures themselves, the most enduring teachings of the craft as imbued with esoter esoteric textual meaning that must be interpreted in order to be grasped is this section from William Preston's first edition of the Illustrations of Masonry, published in 1772. Hey, I just read about that not too long ago. He says this, The lapse of time, the ruthless hand of ignorance, 
and the devastations of war have laid waste and destroyed many valuable monuments of antiquity, even the Temple of Solomon, so spacious and magnificent, and constructed by so many celebrated artists, was yet laid in ruins and escaped not the unsparing ravages of barbarous force. Freemasonry, notwithstanding, has been able to still survive. The attentive ear receives the sound from the instructive tongue, and its sacred mysteries are safely lodged in the repository of faithful breasts. The tools and implements of architecture, symbols the most expressive, imprint on the memory wise and serious truths, and transit unimpaired through the succession of ages, the excellent tenets of this institution. This famous paragraph, so familiar to all English-speaking Masons, with slight variations, makes it clear that the wise and serious truths of Freemasonry have been able to survive despite hostilities rooted in ignorance and barbarism, while the outer structures, the buildings and monuments created by the legendary ancient Masons were destroyed, the inner teachings survived because they were safely communicable using expressive symbolism attached to innocuous tools and implements, combined with an oral tradition. This method is said to be so effective that the teachings of Freemasonry escape the ruthless efforts of its opponents and are said to be transmitted unimpaired. This passage from our tradition impressively echoes one of the key findings of 20th century political philosopher Leo Strauss, who extensively studied esoteric modes of expression. Persecution gives rise to a peculiar technique of writing and therewith to a peculiar type of literature in which the truth about all crucial things is presented exclusively between the lines. That literature is addressed not to all readers, but to trustworthy and intelligent readers only. The fact which makes this literature possible can be expressed in the axiom that thoughtless men are careless readers and only thoughtful men are careful readers. The fact that Preston's encapsulation of the Masonic theory of transmission is phrased in legendary terms and cites persecution in the archetypical example of the destruction of profanation of the Jerusalem Temple by the Babylonians does not subtract in any way from the reality that Masonry here confesses that the use of symbolism is to effectively protect the excellent tenants from the ruthless hands. But did Preston imagine two classes of readers or initiates, some who would get it while others would not? This seems clear from the original form of his Entered Apprentice lecture. Question. Introduced into the inner chamber, what did you discover? Answer. The master and his brethren, all zealously employed in investigating the rise, progress, and effects of hieroglyphics, i.e. symbolic learning. Question. What ensued? Answer. Three judicious observations were made. Question. The first observation? Answer. That it was a duty incumbent on every mason to make daily progress in the art, as no end could be more noble than the pursuit of virtue and benevolence, no motive more alluring than the practice of honor and justice, or any instruction more beneficial than the accurate delineation of symbols which tend to improve and embellish the mind. Question. The second observation. Answer. That objects which particularly strike the eye, 
will more immediately engage the attention and imprint on the memory serious and solemn truths. Question. Third, observation. Answer. The Masons have adopted this mode of conveying construction instruction by allegory and of preserving their tenets and mysteries secret and inviolate, never permitting them to descend within the reach of inexperienced novitiates for, from whom they might not have been received with due veneration. Note that the symbolic mode of instruction is described as being adopted specifically to ensure that the inner meanings are concealed not from outsiders, as one might expect, but from inexperienced new initiates, that is to say, unfit insiders. Preston defines masonry as a regular system of morality concealed in a strain of interesting allegory, which readily unfolds its beauties to the candid and industrious inquirer that he fully intends to draw a line between those who perceive the esoteric messages and those who don't is made even clearer in his fellow craft lecture when he argues that according to the progress we make, we limit or extend our inquiries, and in proportion to our talents, we attain to a less or greater degree of perfection. And this esoteric expression was no innovation of Preston's. A Masonic song of 1731 says... Not force nor offered gold can Mason's truths unfold. And a footnote attached to this passage explains that sublime truths are not obtained any otherwise than by the right study and an endeavor to find out the real sense, which being always veiled are holy, therefore, and sacred. Even this early, less than 15 years after the foundation of the Grand Lodge, the secrets of masonry are distinguished from the modes of recognition and particulars of the ritual and are instead conceptualized as sublime, holy, and sacred matters that are veiled and only available to those who perform a right study as opposed to a wrong one and therefore discover the real sense as opposed to a false one. The idea of profound truth hidden within words that are openly spoken or written is ancient. Plutarch said, one of the best sayings of the philosophers is that those who have not learned to interpret words in their correct sense are bound to go awry, both in their studies and in practice. And centuries earlier still, a famous proverb taught that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to reveal the same. This chapter of Proverbs has often been considered to be concerned with esoteric transmission most famously by the medieval philosopher Maimonides. And what was true of the written word has also been said of visual symbolism. In reference to the myriad pictures, uh, books filled with emblematic engravings, which were so popular in the later years of the Renaissance period, Davidson, David Stevenson says, Words could never capture the full meaning of the picture, for it is it was held that the emblems contain a kind of knowledge which cannot be found in discourse. The pictures encapsulated underlying platonic ideas, and if studied, properly communicated deep wisdom which could not be expressed in words. But the symbols could never be fully comprehended, for they held a plentitude of meanings which meditation and study can never reveal more than partially. Paradoxically, Secrecy and obscurity became an essential part of the great struggle to unlock secrets. Simple and 
literal language is too shallow, poverty-stricken and vulgar to convey great truths. It is easy to uh, see how esotericism of this type, of this second type, the textual interpretive type, embodies a richer understanding of Masonic secrecy by recognizing our ability to perceive meaning beyond the literal sense of words, objects, and pictures. Deeply tied to the degrees and the symbols themselves, this is Masonic esotericism in its essential and perhaps most important form, the process of interpreting the explicit symbolism and language of the craft in order to grasp its implicit messages. It is the kind that Antoine Favre, former chair of esoteric studies at the Sorbonne, typified as an open secret, which is available through a personal effort of progressive elucidation through several successive levels. Tradition teaches us that the exploration of those levels is part of the study of every Freemason. Taxon 3, systematic traditional esotericism as an ism or body of tradition. Adam, our first parent, created after the image of God, the great architect of the universe, must have had the liberal sciences, particularly geometry, written on his heart. For even since the fall, we find the principles of it in the hearts of his offspring. Constitutions of Freemasons of 1723. Esotericism is also used in a third sense, a systematic traditional dimension. In this, in this way, esotericism can function as an umbrella term to refer to any number of traditionally secret or highly exclusive spiritual disciplines which have existed either within or alongside more popular philosophical and religious currents. These include certain forms of Christian mysticism, such as Rosicrucianism and Martinism, Kabbalism and Chariot mysticism in the Jewish tradition, alchemy when viewed as a transformative practice, Pythagoreanism, Hermeticism, and Neoplatonism. Many of the classic expositors of Masonic philosophy have taken the position that Freemasonry represents either the linear inheritor of these traditions or an attempt to rediscover them. For the sake of clarity, I will refer to this third definition as esotericism, capitalized, as it is less of a condition, first sense, or a style, second sense, but a fairly coherent body of ideas. Western esotericism began to coalesce in the Renaissance through the writings of philosophers such as Marsilio Ficino, Pico de la Mirandola, and Jura Leon Abravenal, who would later be known as the humanists. These writers perceived the deep interconnection between Jewish, Hellenistic, and Christian philosophy and they considered this common root to be a primordial wisdom which would eventually be termed philosoph philosophia perennis, the timeless philosophy. But the traditions that comprise this Western esotericism were much older than the Renaissance. Jewish Kabbalah had reached its classical stage in the form of the book of the Zohar, two centuries before Pico introduced the word Kabbalist into European language. The Neoplatonic elements or even older and dated back to late antiquity. Although a direct lineage to ancient tradition remains unverifiable historically, 
Leading Masonic historians David Stevenson has documented the existence of various Hermetic and Kabbalistic influences among the early Freemasons, dating back at least to the late 1500s when William Shaw reworked the remnants of older Masonic organization in Scotland into a lodge system of secret societies and injected into these lodges Hermetic influences. Other aspects of Renaissance thought led to the conclusion that the Masons' craft was far superior to all others, with a central place in the advancement of knowledge. And of course, knowledge and spiritual enlightenment were inextricably linked. This interconnection of science and spirit was also a staple of Masonic literature. From the famous Regis poem of 1420, and see, they say 1420 here. I've been saying 1390, and there you go. It's, you know, give or take 30 years. To the old charges of the 1600s, from the legendary history as compiled by James Anderson in 1723, to the ritual lectures that would echo the same themes, speculative Freemasonry has traditionally tied the Mason's craft to primordial wisdom. This theme has been ever popular among Masonic writers. James Anderson, Lawrence Dermott, William Hutchinson, William Preston, George Oliver, Albert Mackey, Albert Pike, J.S.M. Ward, and W.L. Wilmhurst. Hey, yes. All wove this notion into their philosophical frameworks. Anderson put it in it quaintly with his image of the liberal sciences being written on Adam's heart and transmitted and improved throughout history until inherited by the London Freemasons. Pike updated this concept for the 18th century when he argued that Masonry is the legitimate successor of the mysteries. From the earliest times, the custodian and depository of the great philosophical and religious truths, unknown to the world at large, and handed down from age to age by an unbroken current of tradition embodied in symbols, emblems, and allegories. Many scholars have been content to reject those who repeat the traditional history as gullible or uncritical, but perhaps they are missing the point. There is more involved here than a list of historical claims to be accepted or rejected. There is a philosophical history, a worldview rooted in perennialist concepts. Attraction to those concepts transcends simplistic notions of Adam the Freemason, and addresses itself to Western esotericism theories of human dignity and the continuity of wisdom owing to its innate location in original man. Through the legend of Solomon's temple, this innate quality became connected to outward endeavor, and the craft's historical quest for improvement in architecture was sacralized and invested with philosophical implications. The popularity of Western esotericism among some of today's Masonic candidates cannot be ignored, nor should it. The literal truth of these myths is besides the point. For the most part, those who study Western esotericism today do not believe the legendary histories word for word. Instead, they tend to be deeply attracted to the uplifting values of perennial philosophy. Values our Masonic forebears often understood and promoted. This kind of esotericism has a special appeal to many serious seekers in our modern world because it offers more than superficial answers and asks more than a superficial commitment. It has a venerable history as a part of our Masonic culture.
Certainly, one need not accept it or adhere to it, but perhaps we ought no longer deny its existence, nor characterize it as insignificant. Esotericism and the Call of Initiation There stands the majestic tree before you, its ancient roots penetrating deeply into the soil of time, and its leaves and branches covering with their mighty shadow all the pure and good of every clime and country who will come beneath them. Will you ingloriously recline beneath the widespread shade or helplessly lean for support upon its massive and venerable trunk, nor make one effort to pluck the luscious and life-giving fruit which hang in tempting clusters from its bows? Freemasons, Monthly Magazine, 1863. As an overt interest in esoteric approaches to Freemasonry continues to increase, it is reassuring to understand that, far from being a threat to the fraternity, these interests were part, to some degree, all must grant, of the very foundation of the craft. This is true in all three senses of the word as we've explored. Masonry utilizes esoteric content because some aspects of the craft are private. Masonry uses symbolism and language that can only be gradually and variously understood and at least some influential early Masons were aware of, studied, and adopted certain historical theories from what is today called Western esotericism. It is true that, among some circles, an esoteric approach has a certain stigma to overcome, but we should not sell our philosophical heritage short. Our new members aren't complaining that there is too much philosophy in Masonry. They are more frequently observed saying that they expected more. Is it time to rehabilitate this word, esoteric? It may not be such a hard step to take. After all, unless we believe that every person fully and completely understands the degrees the very moment he first experiences them, we are already in the general vicinity of an esoteric approach because we are effectively saying, there's more there. Keep looking. That is sound advice for the youngest apprentice the wisest past master, and everyone in between. We are all engaged upon an individual labor which must be wrought upon our own ashlers, a deeply personal process of gradual development through progressive levels of meaning, as William Preston described our work so poetically. Knowledge must be attained by degrees, and it is not everywhere to be found. Wisdom seeks the secret shade. The lonely cell designed for contemplation. There enthroned she sits, delivering her sacred oracles. There let us seek her and pursue the real bliss. For though the passage be difficult, the further we trace it, the easier it will become. New vistas of Masonic understanding are open when we embrace the fact that esotericism is an historical element of the craft, wholly in keeping with the classical design of the order. For many, an esoteric engagement represents a vital Masonic duty. They believe that Freemasonry today has only to gain from a reinvigorated esoteric approach which sees the craft's rich initiatic tradition as what it most assuredly was designed to be, a subject of contemplation that enlarges the mind and expands all its powers, a theme that is inexhaustible, ever new, and always interesting. 
Once there was a man who lived up in the mountains and who was a stranger to civilization. He planted wheat and ate the grains uncooked. Then he happened to come down to the city. A good loaf of bread was served to him. What's this? he asked. Bread for eating, they said. He ate it and was pleased. He asked, what is this made of? And they told them it was wheat. Then he was served a fine cake kneaded in oil. He had a taste and asked, And now this, what's this made of? Once more, they said, Wheat. Finally, they brought him a delectable pastry in oil and honey fit for a king. He asked again and got the same answer. Well, he then boasted, I am above these things. I eat only the wheat, which is the very basis of them all. Because of this ignorant attitude, he would evermore remain a stranger to these delights which were lost to him. That is how it is with anyone who learns basic principles and then stops short, who fails to become aware of the delights which derive from the deeper consideration and application of those principles. The Zohar 2.176a and b. I hope you enjoyed that, brethren. Peace out.